What in the world ever happened to repentance? Repentance is not a word we hear much anymore. Oh, certainly not in society, of course not. But in our day and age, rarely in the church. Rarely is there a call anymore to repentance. That sounds so negative. That sounds so old-fashioned. That's kind of harsh. Repent of your sin. Sounds a little judgmental. But repentance is a major theme in the pages of Scripture. You read the Old Testament prophets, you can't read more than a handful of verses, almost literally speaking, without discovering the prophets calling readers and listeners to repentance. You think of the ministry of John the Baptist. What was his ministry all about? It was all about repentance. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, the gospel writers tell us. Repentance was actually the keynote that Jesus sounded in his ministry. The Gospel of Mark, you read in the opening verses, these are the very first words that Mark quotes out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. And here they are. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. A call in the first sentence in Mark's Gospel to repentance. You think about the Apostle Paul. That note of repentance was sounded again and again by the Apostle Paul, for example. Acts 17, God commands all people everywhere to repent, says the Apostle Paul. In fact, if you go through just the New Testament alone, a repentance is spoken of some 58 times. So what is repentance? Paul gives us a clue to what repentance is in our text this morning, and here's the text. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. Paul writes, For godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. An essential element of repentance, as Paul indicates, is sorrow, but that in and of itself is not true repentance. There is a genuine sorrow, a godly sorrow is the way that Paul puts it here, that leads to salvation, doesn't leave regret behind. But there is a worldly sorrow that in the end doesn't mean anything. Indeed, it leads, what does Paul say? It produces death. People can say, I'm sorry. How many people say in various circumstances, oh, I'm really sorry. But if that's all there is to it, it's of a worldly sorrow. It only leads to damnation and death. And so using this passage from 2 Corinthians 7.10, where Paul contrasts godly sorrow with worldly sorrow, I want to unpack this verse for you this morning, and I want to do so by drawing your attention to three words that recur throughout the pages of Scripture. They were part of the title of my message this morning. I want to direct your attention to five different individuals in Scripture who used exactly the same words. 
I have sinned. In most of the cases, it is a worldly sorrow that led to death. In only one case were those words genuine and led to salvation and life. So let's look at these five passages together. I invite you to have your Bibles because we'll be turning to three different passages in the Old Testament and two in the New. I want to start out with Exodus chapter 9 where we have the record of what I would call a desperate repentance. The words, I have sinned, were spoken by the Pharaoh of Egypt, crying out in deep distress, I have sinned. You recall Moses had been sent by God to Egypt, the burning bush, God confronted him in the burning bush, sent him to Egypt, here's the word to give to Pharaoh, let my people go. And what was Pharaoh's response? He was unwilling, he was hard of heart. And so God afflicted the land of Egypt with a series of plagues. You may recall ten of them all together. And you come in chapter 9, and this is where I want to pick up the reading with you, to the seventh plague, the plague of hail. It is described in our text, we would put it as uh, an unprecedented thunderstorm, an electrical storm such as uh, has rarely, if ever, been seen. Severe with giant hail. This is the seventh plague. So picking up the reading, follow along, uh, starting in verse 18. The Lord is speaking, and he says, Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. That's what the Lord says. So let's skip a few verses, go down to verse 23. It says, then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. You can imagine a constant thunder, lightning unremitting, giant hailstones, a storm unprecedented in Egyptian history. And with the thunder roaring and the hail devastating and pounding the crops, with those out in the field who were caught in this storm, perhaps there were those who lost their lives, in the midst of this unremitting storm, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron. And in the middle of the storm, here's what he says. Notice verse 27. It says, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, Notice these next words. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. And I and my people are in the wrong. You couldn't ask for a better response than that, could you? Doesn't that look like repentance? Pray to the Lord. For me, Pharaoh says, we're in the wrong. I have sinned, said Pharaoh. So what does Moses do? He prays. The hail's gone, the lightning's gone, the sky's clear, it's blue and sunny and calm. Notice verse 34. It says, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Oh, I'm really sorry. I've sinned. I'm in the wrong. Once the storm was over with, he went back to his old ways. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this text, 
makes this statement. He says, the repentance that was born in the storm died in the calm. That's a good way of putting it, isn't it? How many people there are who cry out to the Lord in the storms of life? You know, kind of the foxhole repentance. You know, the shells are raining down. Lord, if you get me out of the front lines and get me back home to my family, I'll be different. Things will be changed. How many people in the storms of life, whatever it might be, maybe it's a severe financial setback. Lord, bail me out of this and things will be different. Trust me. Or maybe there is serious family turmoil and crisis, uh, marriage on the rocks or whatever it is. Lord, get me through this and I'll change. I've sinned. Things will be different. Or a serious illness yourself or a loved one. Lord, if you heal this person, I promise you, I'll change my life. All right, maybe some of you have prayed that prayer in years past. God spared you. Was there any lasting change? Maybe the continued pattern of sin in your life speaks for itself. Charles Spurgeon, in the same sermon, told about a doctor he knew who kept a record of some 1,000 persons who thought they were dying. They were in serious condition. They thought they were dying, but ended up recovering after all. Uh, Persons who in their last moments of life, so they thought, in essence cried out, I have sinned to God. And the doctor, Spurgeon said, kept record of those 1,000 people, and only three turned out to live for God after they recovered. The other 997 went back to their old ways. The repentance of Pharaoh and countless others like him is nothing more than a repentance of desperation. Let's look at the second passage. Turn over to Joshua, just several books over. Joshua chapter 7, what I want to call a forced repentance. Here is the, quote, repentance of somebody who says, I have sinned just because he got caught and couldn't say anything else. Uh, You know the story, some of you do, I know. Israel had just conquered the great uh, fortress city of Jericho, a great God-given victory, and there was a little town just up the road, population 12,000. Okay, if we can take the great fortress of Jericho, it's not going to take much to take this little farming village of Ai. And so Joshua didn't send the whole army out. Why do you need to do that? Just send out a relatively small force. Well, the people of Ai turned on those Jewish soldiers, drove them back, killed 36 of them, Joshua tells us. And and, and Joshua is absolutely devastated. He doesn't understand the loss, doesn't understand what's happening. And he's on his face before the Lord. And God says to him, get up off the ground. Get up off your face. There is sin in the camp. You need to deal with it. And so what was the sin? Well, somebody had taken plunder from the city of Jericho when the city had fallen. When you read the book of Joshua, all the soldiers were clearly instructed. You couldn't miss the instruction. All of them were clearly instructed that when the walls come a-tumbling down and you charge each one of you straight ahead into the city, don't take anything. Not one thing for yourself. Is that clear? All the soldiers understood the command. But a soldier from the tribe of Judah, a man by the name of Achan, saw some things he couldn't resist. He found some gold... In one of the dwellings, undoubtedly, he found some silver and a really expensive Babylonian garment worth, I suppose, in our money, several thousand 
dollars. And so he spirited these things out of the destroyed city of Jericho and he brought them back into the camp and he got them into his tent without anybody seeing and he buried them under the floor of his tent. He'll bring them out later once the campaign moves along and nobody thinks anything about it. And so the Lord said to Joshua, there has been somebody who has taken some things from Jericho and until this person uh, is, uh, is discovered and dealt with, there will not be one more victory. So what does Joshua do? He announces to the whole congregation of Israel, two and a half million of them, obviously messengers fanned out to all the tribes in the huge encampment. And he said, I'm going to tomorrow morning institute a process by which we're going to discover who the offender is. Okay, Achan heard that. What did he do? Nothing. Because what are the odds of getting caught? There's two and a half million of us. There are 600,000 soldiers. We know that from the statistics in the scripture. So I'm one of 600,000. What are the odds that anybody's going to know anything? What are my odds of getting caught? I'll just take my chances. So the next morning the process begins. So first of all, which tribe is the offender in? So of the 12 tribes, they cast lots every step of the way. And so the first tribe, the one that the offender is in, is Judah. You can imagine Achan's like, okay, well that was probably a lucky, um, you know, a lucky draw of the lot there. So it's Judah. The other 11 tribes, you know, are all eliminated, so it's not one of them. Then, okay, of the tribe of Judah, let's line up all the clans of Judah. So all the clans are lined up, and cast lots, which clan is it? Oh, it's the clan that Achan is a part of. I wonder what he's starting to feel as this thing is narrowing down. So then out of the clan, all the households were lined up. Which household? And lo and behold, the lot fell on Achan's household. And then which member in this household is it? And the lot fell on Achan. Look at verse 19 of Joshua 7. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Because remember, they sent messengers to his tent and they found the gold and the silver and the garment. I mean, all the goods are there. They took him out from under the, the, the mat that was on the floor of the tent. So Joshua says to Achan, tell me what you've done. Here's the verse, verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. Okay, his words sound sincere, don't they? But he's been found out. What else is he going to say? God had said, don't do it. He did it. He's discovered, oh, I have sinned against the Lord. But it was a forced repentance because he was caught. What else could he say? I, I think of uh, some years ago, the first church I pastored in Lesur, Minnesota, uh, there was a young man in uh, the community by the name of Gary. And he wasn't part of the church. Uh, some in his family were kind of fringe, in a fringe way associated with the congregation. But he had no interest in the church, no interest in Christ, no interest in spiritual things whatsoever until he got arrested for possession of marijuana. And I can remember the panicked phone call got on Thanksgiving Eve. And so one of the elders and I, Thanksgiving Eve, went to the Lesur County Jail to talk to him because he was really disturbed and distressed. 
Oh, he was really sorry. That's what he told me to my face. And he said, in essence, I've sinned, I've done wrong. And he even prayed the sinner's prayer. You know, the, the pray the prayer theology? He even prayed the sinner's prayer. And it all seemed so genuine. But when he got out of jail, he went back to life worse than it was before he was arrested the first time. And his life spiraled downhill from there. His confession, that Thanksgiving Eve, that repentance was provoked by circumstances. He had been caught with the goods. He was in jail. I'm sorry, I've sinned. Maybe God can bail me out or whatever. That was his line of thinking. A forced repentance. Let's turn to the third passage, Numbers 22. What I want to call a fictitious repentance. This is one of the most interesting stories in the entire Old Testament. And in Numbers 22, you meet one of the strangest, most mysterious characters in the Bible, a man by the name of Balaam. Balaam was um, a prophet. Um, he was a mystic of some sort. Uh, he had connections to the supernatural world. He could see into the future. He could predict things. If he cursed something or somebody, the curse came to pass. If he blessed something or somebody, the blessing came to pass. A very interesting kind of individual that we meet in Numbers 22. So here's the setting. The Israelites are camped along the Jordan River. They haven't crossed over yet with Joshua. They haven't gone to Jericho yet. But they're camped for a while on the east bank. And there is another nation right in the vicinity, the nation of Moab. And the king of Moab, his people group and his kingdom is a lot smaller than the two and a half million that are camped along the East Bank, the hordes of Israelites that have come out of Egypt. And he's thinking, what if they turn on me? What, what if they decide not to go across the river but to head my way? I'm a goner. My kingdom is a goner. My territory will be all taken away from me. And so the king, whose name is Balak, sends messengers to Balaam, the great seer, the great prophet, the great mystic, the great spiritualist, the one who has contact with the invisible world. And so I want you to notice, starting the reading in verse 5, so sent messengers to Balaam, and they called him, saying, Behold, here's the message from King Balak, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. I mean, they're right on my border. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you cursed is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian, two allied people groups, departed with the fees for divination. I wonder how much money they offered him for this. This is the king taking money out of the tax revenues, out of the treasury. They departed the leaders of both nations with fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. Balaam is really excited because there are big bucks in front of him. But he says, you know what? I can't give you an answer right now. Spend the night and I'll see what God might say to me uh, over the evening. So just sleep here for the night. I'll tell you in the morning. So verse 12, verse 13. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go to your own land for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. 
So they go back and give the report to King Balak, and he's not about to take no for an answer. And so he sends a second delegation, Numbers says, with the nobility. I mean, he, this was a, a, a kind of a high-level delegation, but this is the highest delegation the king could possibly send. And he said, I'm going to raise the fee. We, I thought I was really generous the first offer, but I will pay you handsomely if you come. What does handsomely mean? I mean, there were multiplied tens of thousands of dollars on the line. And so... Balaam says to this second delegation, stay the night, I'll go to sleep, I'll get some dreams or revelation of some kind, I'll tell you in the morning. So verse 20, and God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them. Oh boy, is Balaam excited. But only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Verse 22, but God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. When God is your adversary, that's a dangerous place to be. And you know how the story unfolds. So they're going along the road, and the angel of the Lord stands in the road. And here's the irony of it. Balaam, who's supposed to be this mystic and see the invisible world, he's a prophet, he is a seer. The donkey in the road sees stuff, and he doesn't. Don't miss the humor of it. And so the donkey sees this angel of the Lord with the sword in his hand, and the donkey is terrified and goes off the road into a farm field, and Balaam starts beating the donkey. What are you doing? Get back on the road. So they go down the road a little bit. And the angel of the Lord stands at a place, the scripture says, where there was a vineyard on each side of the road and a wall along, each, along the vineyard. The vineyard was walled in as was customary. And so the angel of the Lord is standing there in the road, wall on each side, protecting each of the vineyards. And the donkey panics and crushes Balaam's foot into the wall. And in great pain, Balaam takes his stick and starts beating the donkey again. Well, the angel of the Lord moves down the road a little further. And the scripture says, came to a place where there was nowhere to turn. You couldn't go to the right, you couldn't go to the left. It was a narrow place where you were trapped. And there's the angel of the Lord, and Balaam's donkey simply just laid down in the middle of the road and refused to go anywhere. And Balaam starts beating him, and this is the funny part, the donkey starts talking to him, and Balaam, like, converses with the donkey. I mean, okay, if my, if when I was growing up, if my pet dog started talking to me, I wouldn't just, like, carry on a normal conversation. But anyway, but like I say, this is one of the most fascinating stories in the Scripture. And so, um, so the donkey speaks to Balaam, and Balaam's like, how come you went off the road? Well, the donkey says, um, this is not the way I usually do it, but... There were extenuating circumstances. And so verse 31, it says, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. He laid down face down in the dusty road. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let the donkey live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, here's verse 34, I have sinned. 
For I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it's evil in your sight, I'll, I'll go back home. I mean, he wants to spare his life. He doesn't want the, the angel of the Lord with the sword to kill him out there on the road. You know, if, I mean, I, I'm really sorry. I, I shouldn't have gone. I, I'm, I'll go back home. Let, let's just, I'll just head back the other way. Let's just pretend this never happened. But the Lord says to Balaam, verse 35, go with the men, but speak only the word I tell you. So Balaam repents so he's not killed on the road. He repents to save his life, and he still wanted the money. And so when the Lord says, you go with the man, but only speak what I tell you, he's thinking like, okay, I can still get the big payday. The, you know, this repentance business was just so the angel didn't kill me in the middle of the road, but now I'm good to go. And so here is Balaam, I, I guess what I would call a fictitious repentance. He had no intention of changing his life one iota. Well, now let's turn to the New Testament, number four. Turn to Matthew chapter 27. We have an account of what I would call a despairing repentance. It's uh, the familiar story of Judas. Judas, one of the, the 12, he betrayed Jesus. You know the story for 30 pieces of silver. Um, he led the authorities to Jesus on that Thursday night uh, uh, as they were disciples and Jesus were in the Garden of Gethsemane and, of course, betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And so Jesus is arrested there in the Garden, the trials that took place Thursday night, early Friday morning. And let's pick up the reading with the first verse of Matthew 27. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Isn't that kind of repentance, changing your mind? And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And here's what he said, verse 4. I have sinned. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went out and he hanged himself. A despairing repentance, that's Judas. People can feel a great sorrow for what they've done. Undoubtedly, Judas did can feel a great sorrow for what they've done without ever turning to God. People can be sorry how, for example, their drug abuse or their alcohol abuse has devastated their health, devastated their family, ruined their career. Oh, I'm really sorry, and they're genuinely sorry. Or there are those who can weep bitterly over their immorality. It's destroyed their marriage, scarred their children, and they're sorry about it all. Um, some overwhelmed with regret for the road of life they've taken end up in prison. Oh, I'm sorry. L like Judas, filled with deep remorse. Um, Judas certainly had worldly sorrow. There's no question about it. But filled with deep remorse, he cried out, I have sinned. But it was a despairing repentance. He went out and committed suicide. I have sinned, he said. 
So you notice this is how Paul, when Paul talks about a worldly sorrow that leads to death, these are four examples of individuals. Each one used exactly the same words, I have sinned, but none of them is it a genuine repentance. Now we come to the final one. One example of godly sorrow in the scriptures. Luke chapter 15. Most of you know the story well. It's the story of the prodigal son. You know where the story goes. The father had two sons. The younger one says to his father, give me the portion of the estate that is coming to me. He received it. He left home. And as the scripture says, he went as far away from his home as he possibly could. He went not just to the country on the border, but he went to a far distant land. It took him quite some time to get there, but he was going to get as far away as he possibly could. And he was going to have a great time because he had a large inheritance. He had money to spend right and left. He could live life wide open, and that is exactly what he did. And so he was partying, he lived the good life, he had all kinds of friends who were everywhere to be found, he had no accountability, no restraints, nobody telling him what to do or what not to do, and life was great for several years until he ran out of money. And he squandered everything, and he found himself penniless, and he found himself alone because all of his erstwhile friends, they were his friends because he had the money and they could party together at his expense and have a good time. But now the money's gone, the partying is over, and all of his friends are gone. And so he finds himself in difficult circumstances. To top it off, Jesus says, there were hard economic times in that country. And to top that off, it was a time of very severe famine and so this young man who had riches every which way now they're all gone he's desperate to stay alive and so he hires himself out to feed pigs and understand as Jesus says that 2,000 years ago to his Jewish audience that was about as low as you could go and so here is this young man son of a extremely wealthy farmer well-respected landowner there he is, he has, he's, he's gaunt, he has just rags hanging on his frame, his eyes are sunken, his hair is matted, he has the stench of the pigsty on him, he's literally starving to death. When all of a sudden a thought comes into his mind, how is it, he thinks to himself, that even the hired help on the farm Dad pays extremely well. Say nothing of us as boys. Dad pays his help extremely well, so they have food and to spare. In other words, didn't just give them a living wage, gave them enough they could save up for retirement or whatever it was, paid them well. How is it that even the hired hands have those kind of resources? And so he says in verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So off he goes. And let's use our sanctified imagination to uh, sort of picture the journey in our minds because he's many, many miles away. He has no money. So he obviously begs from town to town to go a few more miles up the road. Um, the roads are barren. He trudges up this hill, down the other, barren valleys, barren terrain. Last of all, finally, he comes to the final rise. And he looks down, 
and there's dad's farm in the valley below. There's the old homestead. The windmill is still standing on the property. The barn is there where he and his older brother used to play in the hayloft in the summertime, having a lot of fun. And there's the old battered mailbox by the gravel road. Well, who would have guessed it? That's still standing there. And so at the site of the old homestead of the farm, just spread out in beauty before him there in the valley, all the associations of the former years just flooded into his mind. And he's almost ready to turn around, let's imagine. Wonder if dad's even still living after all these years. And what about mom? I, I, I know I broke her heart with my rebellion and my arrogance leaving the way I did. And if, and if both of them are still living, don't know if they are, but if they're still living, they're not going to want to have anything to do with me after all these years. They'll slam the door in my face. They'll have the hired help usher me off the property with threats not to come back. So what can I do? I can't go back. That's sure death. And I'm afraid to go forward. And so as he stands there in turmoil, his father, who was out in the yard, who had been out in the yard every day for years, looking down the road, the son didn't see him, but dad saw the son. And so the father saw him and didn't wait for him with crossed arms to say, well, let's wait till he gets to the yard. I'll give him a talking to. But what does the father do? With shouts of joy, he tears out of the yard as fast as he can go and begins to run toward his son. And before the son realizes it, the arms of the father are around him. He is kissed repeatedly. He is embraced. And the son is overwhelmed by such um, passionate, unexpected, undeserved kind of love. And he begins to sob out his confession. Here it is, verse 21. Father, I have sinned. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. There was more he was going to say, but dad interrupts him. And before he can get out the rest of everything he wanted to say, the father says, bring out the best. Bring out the best robe, put the ring on his finger, new sandals on his feet, find the best fatted calf in the herd, kill it. We're going to have a celebration like we've never had on the farm before. We are going to celebrate and rejoice because this my son was dead, he is alive, he was lost, and now he's found. Pharaoh said, I have sinned. Achan said, I have sinned. Balaam said, I have sinned. Judas said, I have sinned. The prodigal son said, I have sinned. What's the difference among the five? The first four of them, their words were only an expression of what Paul calls worldly grief for various reasons. The prodigal's words, I have sinned, are an expression of what Paul calls godly sorrow, godly grief. And that godly sorrow led to true repentance. What's the difference between the prodigal and the others? I want you to notice in Luke 15. I want to draw your attention to two phrases in two verses. Verse 18, 
The prodigal says, I will arise and go to my father. And verse 20 says, and he arose and came to his father. There's the key, the clue right there. You see, repentance is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. It is not the shedding of copious tears. It is not anguish. It is not sorrow. It is not remorse. It is not regret. All of that may be involved. Don't misunderstand me. All those things may indeed be involved, but at its most basic, godly sorrow, godly repentance is utter brokenness of spirit that causes you to turn from sin to God. That's the difference between the prodigal son and the other four. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, I've sinned. Repentance is turning to God, and there is a total change of life direction. So let me just in closing say to each one of you here this morning, if you have been wandering from God, maybe you've never come to the Savior, even in the first place. I want you to understand, based on Luke 15, there's a loving Father looking for you. And he's running toward you, even this morning, ready to embrace and to forgive, ready to give the best he has to offer. And so the call to you, each of you this morning, whether you've never come to the Savior, whether you've wandered away from the Savior, the call is to come home to God. The call is to come home in Jesus' name. The call is to come just as you are without one plea except Jesus shed his blood on the cross for my salvation. The call is to come in your brokenness and your helplessness. Come trusting the Savior's power, unlimited power, to take away your sins, to heal your soul, to restore you to himself. The call to you this morning is indeed, O sinner, O wandering one, come home. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance and life. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, there's been times in life, and all of us have been there, where, oh, we're so sorry about one thing or the other. And we kind of are, but it's not because we have broken your holy law. It's not because we have denied your name. It's because of the consequences that come into our lives. We're just like, just bail me out, God. That's kind of what I'm saying when I'm saying I'm sorry. But Lord, how different godly sorrow is that leads to life and repentance and leaves no regret. Ah, worldly sorrow, there's always regret in its train. So Lord, for anyone here this morning who has wandered away, may they hear your call to come home. For those who have never received the gift of eternal life in a personal way, opening the, the door of the heart and inviting Jesus to come in, may this be the day of salvation. Thank you that the call sounds forth with clarity and with warmth and with amazing grace and love. And it's not us running to meet you, you come running to meet us. And you embrace us with your grace and with your love. And so, Lord, uh, for any one or ones that you've spoken to today, may they rightly respond to your word. These things I ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.